We're beginning a five-episode podcast on Episcopal beliefs and practices. Up next, it's The Liturgical Journey, based on a book called Walk in Love. Thanks for joining us for the Church Next Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Church Next Podcast. My name is Chris Yaw, and I'm your host as we learn from gifted presenters on a variety of topics designed to help us grow in our spiritual lives. You're listening to episode number 15. It's called Walk in Love, The Sacramental Journey with Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe. Scott is an author, priest, and the head of Forward Movement Publishing House. Melody is also a priest, author, and a popular speaker. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library over at churchnext.tv. You can find out more by going there. And if you'd like to support us, consider a $9 a month subscription that will give you full access to our individual online classes, more than 300 of them. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. The Sacramental Journey. Today we're talking about the history and beliefs of Anglicanism, focusing specifically on the experience of the sacraments when we talk about Anglicanism. The sacraments, of course, are exterior manifestations of interior experiences of grace. Externally, Christians experience being bathed in water, eating bread, drinking wine, and a variety of other sacred activities. And inside, Christians experience a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual communion. As we look at baptism with water, as we look at eating the bread and drinking the wine, as we look at those sacred acts of communion. In this episode, Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe talk about the nature of sacraments. They discuss what we do when we practice each of them and the relationship between the sacraments and grace. From Scott and Melody's book, Walk in Love, quote, Prayer changes our brains and our behavior. What we say and do on Sunday informs and shapes how we act and think on Thursday and Monday and every other day. When we spend our time in prayer focused on gratitude, we become more grateful people. When we pray for peace, we begin to act more peacefully. Our prayers become a deep and meaningful part of us, words that are truly learned by heart, being taken into ourselves and shaping us. In this first talk, Scott and Melody cover the origins of the Anglican Church and some of the ideas central to the Anglican approach to faith. The Book of Common Prayer is central in bringing Anglican worshipers together across history and across continents. They discuss the origins of the Book of Common Prayer, the book's unique role in Christian liturgical history, and the ways in which the prayer book brings Anglican worshipers together today. here to talk about Anglican Christianity. I want to say a word about those two words, Anglican and Christianity. Christianity, of course, is familiar. It means followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we Christians are. But the other one is Anglican, which is a word you may have heard but may not quite know where it comes from. It comes from English, and it means that we're Christians who can trace our theological and liturgical and our our heritage of tradition back to the time of Christianity in England. And so if Christianity is the very broadest understanding of who we are, we are followers of Jesus Christ, and Anglican um, describes a next level broadness, in particular, we are both priests in the Episcopal Church, which is 
the Episcopal expression of the Anglican Church, or as our presiding bishop Michael Curry likes to say, the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement. Episcopal, the word, just comes from a word meaning bishops, um, and it has to do a little bit with how we're governed, but really is the, per- the name for our particular expression of the faith. So one of the important ideas in Anglican Christianity that we sometimes hear is a, a Latin phrase, lex arandi, lex credendi. And what it means is sort of roughly translatable as the law of prayer is the law of belief. Or you can reverse it, the law of belief is the law of prayer. And what that means is that our praying shapes our believing. How we pray shapes what we believe. Another phrase that you sometimes hear about Anglican Christianity is the via media, which means the middle way. That that comes from a time when the Anglican uh, Christian tradition was seen as a middle way between the, what, was, what was seen as the excesses of Rome and the excesses of, of, of continental Protestantism. And so English Christianity was a middle way that avoided those two extremes, but also incorporated parts of them. But in particular, when you're trying to define what is an Anglican church and particularly what is an Episcopal church, one of the ways that we understand that is that we are people who worship according to the Book of Common Prayer. It's a pretty basic way to understand what does it mean to be an Anglican or what does it mean to be an Episcopalian. Um, We use a particular book for our worship called the Book of Common Prayer. So let's say a little bit about what that is particularly. Um, The first Book of Common Prayer was written in 1549, published, uh, put together really, by then Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. And ever since then, there have been further iterations of the Book of Common Prayer, which have been passed down through the ages. And Anglican churches around the world and the Episcopal Church today worship according to the Book of Common Prayer. It's a book. The title tells us what it is. That was actually kind of a radical idea when it first came out, because the idea prior to 1549 was that the liturgies, the ways that we worship as a community, were exclusive to the clergy or maybe the monastics, monks and nuns. They were the only ones who had access to the structure of how we pray and the words that we pray. Thomas Cranmer said no, um, and others, um, said no, we think it should be a book that anyone can have and hold, that all people should have access to the ways that we pray as a community. So it was printed as a book that anyone can have, and today you too can have a Book of Common Prayer. It's not just a book, but it's common. Common, not in a pejorative sense, but in the sense that it is available to all, and we hold it in common. These are the prayers we say together as a community. It's not one person's way of praying, it's our way of praying. That's what it means to be an Episcopalian, to be part of the Episcopal Church. We pray in this particular way, together. And it is the Book of Common Prayer. Now notice it says prayer and not prayers. It is full of many prayers, but prayer singularly is telling us about this is the way that we pray. The Book of Common Prayer has prayers for all parts and situations of life. It has the Eucharist and Holy Baptism, which we'll get to later. It also has prayers for daily use at meals, prayers for times when you're struggling with sickness, all different kinds of prayers but it's the way that we pray. It is our prayer together as a community held in the pages of this book that we can all have and hold in our hands. Um, That's what it means to be part of this particular church, to pray in this particular way. Again, from Scott and Melody's book called Walk in Love, 
The classic definition of sacraments says they are outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. In other words, sacraments are an external manifestation of something that happens internally. To put it another way, they are earthly signs of heavenly activity. For example, when we baptize someone, the outward sign is the water, but inside the person has changed. In this next talk, Scott and Melody introduce the sacraments. They explain what sacraments are, how they relate to grace, and how they change those who participate in them. They then explore the sacrament of baptism, specifically what the ritual involves, what it means for participants, and for the rest of the Christian community, and what happens on a spiritual level during baptism. We're going to talk about some sacraments now. We're going to start with baptism, but before that, let's talk about sacraments. Sacraments, we sometimes say, are sure and certain means of grace. They're taught by Jesus himself as ways that we can know and be sure we're receiving God's grace. It's important for us to know that when we talk about sacraments and sacramental grace, we're not saying that sacraments are the only place you can experience God's grace, but what we're saying is that in the sacraments, we know for sure that we're experiencing God's grace. Most Christians who talk about sacraments agree that there are seven of them. Baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, ordination, marriage, unction, and reconciliation. In the Episcopal Church, technically, according to the Book of Common Prayer, there are two sacraments, Holy Baptism and Holy Eucharist, and the other five are called sacramental rites. But most Episcopalians talk about seven sacraments in common with other Christians. Today we're going to talk about holy baptism, which is really the first sacrament of the church. And the Book of Common Prayer actually tells us a little bit about what holy baptism is and what it means in the catechism. And on page 858, you can see a little bit about what our church teaches that holy baptism is and what it means. One, holy baptism is union with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's a pretty crazy thing to think about, that what we do when we baptize babies or young people or grown-ups is to bring them into union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Secondly, we say that baptism is birth into God's family, the church. That when we baptize people, we are baptizing them into the family of God, and in particular, into the church. Thirdly, baptism is about forgiveness of sins. This is very clear in scripture and very clear in our prayers. One of the things we say about all people is that we don't always choose rightly. Even when we're very small, we might make wrong choices, or we participate in the systems of the world that are broken. That's called sin. And we say that every person needs to seek forgiveness of sin. In a very real way, baptism is how we seek forgiveness of sin through the church. The fourth thing that we say about what baptism is, is that it is new life in the Holy Spirit. We aren't just baptized in order to be cleansed from sin, but to be made totally new so that we can be new people inspired to follow God more closely and to live out our faith in our daily lives. The service of baptism in our prayer book has several parts. One part is that at the very beginning of the service, um, an adult who's being baptized um, is presented or a child is presented, a set of questions are asked of them. 
And there are six of those questions. Three of them are about renouncing Satan and evil and turning away from our old ways. And then there are three questions about turning toward Jesus and turning toward the new life of grace. We say the Apostles' Creed together, the ancient baptismal creed. Then there are some questions about how we'll live out our lives together as baptized people. The Apostles' Creed and those five questions about how we live out our lives are together called the Baptismal Covenant. Then it's time for the baptism, and the priest or the bishop will first bless the water, consecrate the water that's going to be used, um, and then it's time for the baptism. At its simplest level, we only need two things for baptism. Water, it could be a river, a lake, a font, a tiny bit of water, maybe in a hospital emergency room for uh, somebody who's near death. Any, any amount of water is fine. And then the priest says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. After the baptism, the priest takes some consecrated oil and makes the sign of the cross on the forehead of the newly baptized and says their name, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. So who can be baptized? In the Episcopal Church, anyone can be baptized, and even an infant. The Episcopal Church is one of the churches that practices infant baptism, which means you don't have to be old enough to make those promises for yourself or to understand what they mean in order to be baptized into our community. We say that parents and godparents can make those promises on behalf of even the smallest child. One of the reasons we say that is because we think that no one really understands those great big promises they're going to make in baptism, but that anyone can be welcomed into the great family of God. Nearly all Christians recognize one another's baptism. We never re-baptize people. We welcome people into our particular expression of the faith. But once you've been baptized, that's once and forever. From Scott and Melody's book called Walk in Love, in fulfilling Christ's command to remember him in the blessing of the bread and the wine, we experience his presence and are nourished to do his work. In our celebrations of the Eucharist, we are fed by word and sacrament. The scriptures are read and we feast on Christ's presence in the bread and wine. In this act, we see Jesus, but the gathered community is also reminded that we are the body of Christ. In this next talk, Melody discusses the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. She frames her discussion around the different terminology we use for this sacrament, discussing what all these different terms reveal about our beliefs concerning the Eucharist. So if baptism is the first sacrament, the sacrament of entry into the church, the Holy Eucharist is our second sacrament. And in fact, Holy Eucharist follows right on the heels of Holy Baptism. In the Episcopal Church, all baptized people, regardless of age, can receive Holy Eucharist, which means even on the date of their baptism, an infant can receive a drop of wine on his or her tongue. We say that all baptized people are welcome into the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. So although it is the second sacrament in the journey of a sacramental life, Holy Eucharist is the sacrament that we experience every week in the Episcopal Church. It is the touchstone of our worship together. So what is Holy Eucharist? We can start with the word itself. The word Eucharist comes from the word for thanksgiving. So really what we do when we celebrate the sacrament of Holy Eucharist together is we give thanks. We give thanks to God who has given everything to us. And we share a meal around a table 
is a way of giving thanks. And in fact, Holy Eucharist has a number of different names that help us to understand what it is we're doing when we gather together in this particular way. One of the names you may have heard is the Lord's Supper. That's a reference to Jesus's last supper with his disciples. And in fact, when we join together and share Holy Eucharist, we are brought once again to the last supper with Jesus and Jesus is brought to us in a reenactment, not just a remembering in our minds, but a remembering, a living again in our bodies, that moment when Jesus shared the meals with his disciples. We also sometimes call the Holy Eucharist Holy Communion. Communion means together with, and in fact, the Holy Eucharist is a sacrament of unity. It's when we are together with God in Christ in a very particular way, and also when we are joined together as a Christian community. In Holy Eucharist, we are brought together with our church community, those who kneel at the rail with us, but also with Christians through time and space, with the saints that have gone before us and those who are far from us. Communion is a way that we are brought in a very special way together as people of God. We also sometimes call Holy Eucharist the Mass. The Mass is a word that is often misunderstood. People believe that it is specific to the Roman Catholic Church. But the word Mass actually comes from the word for sending, and it means being sent forth. In the Episcopal Church, we end our service of Holy Eucharist with a dismissal, with the idea that we are sent forth into the world. We're nourished by the food at the table of Holy Eucharist, and that empowers us to do God's work in the world. We celebrate the Mass every week because we are a people who are sent forth. There are two other names for Holy Eucharist that help us understand what it means that you may or may not have heard. One is the Divine Liturgy. The Divine Liturgy is a name for Holy Eucharist that reminds us who the object, who the real focus of Holy Eucharist is. Although we may get things out of Holy Communion, we may be fed and nourished by that experience, the worship that we offer in Holy Eucharist is for God. It is divine. Our focus is on God, giving thanks to God, expressing gratitude, and being empowered to serve God in the world. Another name for Holy Eucharist that helps us understand what it means is the Great Offering. In Holy Eucharist, we remember Jesus's great sacrificial offering, that Jesus gave himself on the cross for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, and that we might never be separated from God ever again. And in Eucharist, we also offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a living sacrifice to God. When we present the bread and the wine, the money to the table so that it can be blessed, consecrated, and made holy, we are presenting ourselves to God as a way of being a living sacrifice to serve God in the world. Once more from Scott and Melody's book, quote, the section in the Book of Common Prayer following the Holy Eucharist is called Pastoral Offices and includes many of the sacramental rites instituted by the Church through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. These sacramental rites include rites of passage, like confirmation and marriage, as well as liturgy for the sick and for the dying. The rites encompass times of great joy, as well as those of pain and grief, a reminder that God in Christ wants to walk with us through all the moments of our lives, the beginning and the end, the highs and the lows, the everyday, and the once in a lifetime. 
Although these liturgies are less frequently used than the services for Holy Eucharist or Holy Baptism, they are no less important. They are a means of grace, connecting us to God and to one another in the midst of some of the defining moments of our lives. In this last talk, Scott examines the five sacramental rites beyond the Eucharist and baptism and discusses the roles these rites take in our spiritual lives. We already talked about how there are seven sacraments for Anglicans, two sacraments, five sacramental rites. Now we're going to talk about the five sacramental rites. One of those is confirmation. This is a sacrament by which people are able to make a mature profession of faith. As we said in the baptism session, sometimes infants are baptized and they're not able to make their own promises. Other people make the promises for them. In confirmation, people are able to claim their faith and the bishop comes and lays her hands or his hands on the person's head and that symbolizes the Holy Spirit coming into that person's life. Marriage is another one of the sacraments. It's important for us to understand the wedding is the beginning of the sacrament of marriage. The wedding itself isn't the sacrament, it just begins the sacrament. In Marriage, the sacrament is that two people give themselves to one another and love each other sacramentally as Christ loved us. And in their love for each other, two people express the generous, selfless love that God has for us. And so every marriage bears witness to God's love of us. Next comes healing, or sometimes you hear the fancy Latin word, unction. Healing is a sacrament by which a priest comes and anoints us with oil and says prayers over us to bring God's healing grace into our lives. We don't believe that every time the sacrament of healing is performed that the person will become medically well, though that could happen, but that God's healing presence comes to someone who is struggling with illness, whether it's illness of body or mind. Another sacrament is the reconciliation of a penitent or confession. This is when someone names their sins, confesses their sins, says their sins out loud to a priest who hears them privately and announces God's forgiveness. Now, this is different from what we call the general confession or a corporate public confession that we do usually every Sunday in church. We say that we're sorry for the things we've done, and the priest tells us that God has forgiven us. In the sacrament of confession, I individually go to a priest and name the things that I'm sorry for out loud, and the priest hears them, sometimes offering spiritual counsel along the way, and tells me that I'm forgiven. The priest doesn't forgive me. The priest announces that God forgives me. And the priest is bound by the rules of our prayer book never to disclose the contents of a confession ever for any reason. That priest will take whatever you say to her or to him to the grave. The last of the sacraments is ordination or holy orders. 
These are sacraments by which the church sets apart some people for certain ministries in the church. Every person in the church, as our Book of Common Prayer says, is a minister. In the catechism, it says, who are the ministers of the church? The ministers are lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. It goes from most important to least important. Lay persons are the most important ministers of the church. But in addition, we do set aside certain people for ministry in the church. Bishops have a ministry of guarding the tradition and the unity of the church and overseeing the church and being a pastor to other clergy. Priests have the ministry of acting in local communities on behalf of the bishop because the bishop can't be everywhere. And in celebrating the sacraments and in declaring God's pardon and in being a pastor and a prophet and a priest to the people in a particular community. Deacons have a liturgical ministry that comes from a servant ministry, and they help set the table and have a ministry of hospitality when we celebrate the Eucharist. They wear, they wear um, stoles uh, crosswise, and that recalls a kind of, uh, from ancient Middle East, it, it recollects the idea of a, of a towel, of a servant's towel. Deacons are servants. They also proclaim the gospel inside the church. If there's a deacon present, when it's time to read the gospel, it's the deacon who proclaims the gospel inside the church. But also, deacons have a particular and very special and very important ministry, proclaiming the gospel of the church in the world, the gospel of Jesus in the world, taking the world out of the church. So deacons are sometimes understood with a, as, as bridges who make sure that the church never forgets the needs of the world and making sure that the world never forgets the ministration and the love of the church. If you'd like to go a bit farther in your knowledge about this subject, a couple of books to recommend. The first, also by Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe, it's called Faithful Questions, Exploring the Way of Jesus. There's another book by Andrew Davison called Why Sacraments? Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a book called Being Christian. Theologian N.T. Wright wrote a book called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. Hilary Raining has written a book called Joy in Confession, Recovering Sacramental Reconciliation. Francis Wade has a classic book called The Art of Being Together. It's about marriage. And The Sacrament of Anointing the Sick by Lizette Larson Miller. And that's our podcast for the day. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, if you want to know more about us, you can pop over to churchnext.tv and may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you and be with you this day and always. Amen.